Welcome to the New Life Baptist Podcast. Our mission is to love the Great Commandment, live the Great Commission, and lead one more to Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening, and we hope that you are encouraged today as we dive into God's Word. Well, amen. As we continue to worship together today, let me invite you, let's take the Word of God, let's open the Word of God and turn in the Word of God to Acts chapter 4. We continue from Acts chapter 3, and if you remember in Acts chapter 3, last Sunday we saw Peter and John, two of the twelve, if you remember how they were being used by God to build and establish and extend the church of God here in the book of Acts, and they're on their way into the temple. And on their way into the temple uh, for a 3 p.m. prayer meeting, there's a, a lame man, a beggar on the side of the road who calls out to them. He calls out and he gets their attention. Peter and John turn and say, listen, bro, we don't have any money to give you. We don't have silver. We don't have gold. But we do have something that will not change your life for just a moment, but will change your life for eternity. And in the name of Jesus, they say, rise up, get up, and walk. And all of a sudden, this layman who's been there over 40 years of age, it says in Acts 4, he gets up and he walks and not only walks, but he leaps and rejoices and starts showing the display of the power, the miracle power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes into the temple with praise on his lips. And as this man is leaping and praising, all of a sudden his praise gets the attention of people and he begins to reach people. They all began to gather. All the people come and see this man. See the power of Christ alive in this man. They begin to pay attention, and Peter sees an opportunity, and Peter preaches the gospel. He talks about a Jesus who was buried, and a Jesus who died, and a Jesus who rose again for the forgiveness of sins. And he preaches the second gospel sermon here post-resurrection, and he preaches two things. He preaches guilt, but then he preaches grace. He preaches guilt that all of us are guilty That all of us, apart from Christ, we stand no chance of eternal life without the gift of Jesus Christ. That we all are lost, we all have sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, and that without Christ we all will deserve a place called hell, separated from God for all eternity. That is the guilt that stands on every single one of us without Jesus Christ. That's the bad news, but he preaches not only guilt, he preaches the good news, grace. That whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can and should be and will be saved. That there is a Jesus who not only knows us as sinners, but there's a Jesus who's a Savior who died in our place, who took all of our sin and shame upon his own life on the cross for us. And not only did he take our place as a substitute, but he took our place as the Savior. And now if we will repent, if we will return, if we will recognize, and if we will receive, we will be saved. That's the good news. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what guilt and shame may mark your life, there's a Savior who loves you and wants to save you from your own sin. So he preaches that. And and, and we see that in verse uh, 19. He says in chapter 3, if you just scroll back a little bit from chapter 4, he tells them in the middle of the sermon, how do I receive that I'm guilty? What do I do? He says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We see a couple of people here, and the first time, at least 3,000 people, they not only recognize their sinners, but then they repent of their sin. What's repentance? Let's, let's talk real fast. Biblical repentance is a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction that results in a changed life. 
when I change my mind about my sin, that I don't want this world anymore, I, my heart has changed now, I desire things of God because I've got the Holy Spirit convicting me and calling me, so I'm going to change my direction. I was walking in darkness, but now I'm going to walk towards the light. I was walking in ignorance, but now I'm going to walk in truth, and now I'm not going to walk this direction. I'm walking towards Christ, and now all of a sudden, when I've changed my mind, my heart's been changed, my direction has been changed, I'm going to have a changed life in Jesus' name. That's repentance. And so he says, repent and then return. Don't only turn from sin, but turn to Savior. Right? Don't only turn from a sin, but turn to a Savior. And we see that's going to happen again in this text as people respond to the gospel. So if you will with me, let's see how we respond to this in chapter 4. Let's stand for the reading of the Word of God today, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. And I want you to see today, this is the invitation to come to Christ and to come all the way. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, they came up to them and they were greatly disturbed or they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They weren't teaching church, they were teaching Christ, right? Weren't teaching religion, they were teaching relationship. And they laid hands on them, they put their hands on them, they put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message, what did they do? How did they respond? They believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This is the word of God, amen? Amen. May his truth be written on our hearts today. May you have a seat. May you keep the text open before you, and may you grab the worship guide as well. I'm going to ask you to turn to the very back, and on the back side, we're going to plug in some things together as we walk through the Word and look at the response to the gospel. I want to see four things. Peter and John, filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter and John, fearless faith. Peter and John, willing to do whatever it takes to spread the good news to the ends of the earth, to fulfill the command of Christ. And we're going to see kind of four responses today to the gospel, four responses to this call to repent and return. And here's the first one we see. We see the lost, they received salvation. All right, the lost, they received salvation. How do we know that? Well, it says in verse 4 again, but many of those who heard the message, many of those who heard the resurrection, remember they were speaking about the resurrection. You go read chapter 3, Peter's sermon. He was talking about a risen Jesus. And many who heard the good news, the message, what did they do again? They believed. They received it. They believed it. And the number of the men came to be about five. So we see 2,000 people. We go back, chapter 2, 3,000 men got saved. Chapter 4, 2,000 men get saved. There's at least 5,000 men who have responded to the invitation of Christ. Now, that doesn't count women and children. That's just the men represented here. And so it's possible there's 10 to, to 15 to 20,000 people who have said yes to Jesus, who have responded in obedient faith. And so there's 5,000 who have followed Christ. And so follow what's happening here. Peter's wrapped up his sermon. He's preached the message. The message has been given. The church service has happened. And he's preached the message of a risen Savior. And the temple leaders are like, hey, that's enough. They finally had it. And say, we got to shut this down. we we got to kill this. Peter, you're done. All right, they're they're grabbing the shepherd hook, pulling him off the stage, right? They've heard enough, and they they arrest Peter and John. And it's almost, as you read this, it's almost as they're being dragged off, off the stage into jail. They're like, receive Christ, repent, and return. And all of a sudden, as he gives this invitation gives an invitation to follow Christ. What do we see here? We see people, 2,000 at least, recognize their sin. 2,000 at least repent of their sin. And 2,000 receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. That when, when, when they see the, the person giving the invitation, when they see him being dragged off, they see him being taken to jail, 
They're like, all right, so if I follow Christ, I get Jesus in jail time, right? That's what's on the line. And 2,000 people are like, sign me up. I'm ready to go. I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to count the cost. 2,000 people are all in on following Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't preaching religion. He was preaching the resurrection. He wasn't preaching rituals. He was preaching relationship. The gospel message is never that Jesus makes good men or dead or makes bad men good. All right? The gospel message is never that Jesus makes bad men good. The gospel message is always that Jesus makes dead men alive. He wasn't saying, hey, just change a few habits. You know, you know just you know, learn how to become a good person in the temple. No, he didn't say any of those things. He says, you need to receive Jesus. You need to recognize there is a savior for your sin. And, and, and rules and rituals, morality, sacraments, performance, none of that will ever gain you salvation. If you're counting on behaving your way into heaven, you're going to be missing it by a long shot. Because salvation, as we know, has never been a reward for the righteous. Salvation has always been a gift for the guilty. Always. It's never been a reward for righteous behavior. Never a reward for righteous people. It's always been a gift for those who recognize their guilt and the grace that comes in that relationship with Jesus Christ. And 2,000 men, they repent and they return because they know that only Jesus makes us right with God. Only Jesus gives us eternal life. Just like chapter 2, they were cut to the heart. And they knew, i got to respond to this with faith. And they, they knew this, I, I can never go back and undo what I've done. That's a harrowing thought, isn't it? To, to know, like, I can never go back and fix it. That all my shame, all my guilt, all my regrets, all my mistakes, you think about your life and everything you've ever done wrong. You can never go back and fix it. You can never go back and undo what they've done. And they've heard that, that they're guilty, that there's no way you can go back because you killed Jesus. You're responsible for his death. And in that same breath, they hear the good news. But there's salvation for you today. It's incredible. To be condemned, to be told that you are separated from God, to be told that you're guilty of sin, but also be told that you can receive grace for your guilt. You can receive mercy for all your sin. You can receive salvation because understand that God always gives grace for your guilt. And that no matter if your sin may be many, his mercy is always more. And so we see that the lost, man, praise God, this invitation was given because the lost received salvation. And that takes us to number two, the religious. How the religious respond? They rejected the Savior. The lost received it, but the religious rejected it. How do we know they rejected it? It goes on in verse 5. On the next day, so they've taken them to jail. Now it's too late to do anything, so they, they're going to wait till the next day. The next day, they're rulers and elders and scribes that were gathered together in Jerusalem. That's a council about 70 plus one, 71, one to be the tiebreaker. They've got this council, all the big dogs, all, all the big wigs in the religious system, the Jewish system in Jerusalem, all the religious leaders. And it says Annas, the high priest, was there. He was there on the trial of Jesus. We recognize his name. Caiaphas also recognized his name from the Gospels. Both of those men were there, but there's also a guy named John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. So you can trace that back to the Levite tribe, right? These are people who have taken their role in this place, in the system, and when they had placed them in the center, put them in the middle of the council, they began to inquire. We want to know, by what power or in what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how much this man has been made well. Hey, if we're on trial for doing something good, 
Then, then we got a second trial we need to talk about, but if we're on trial for this, then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel, watch this, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. In other words, hey, it wasn't me. It wasn't us. It's him. All right, the trial is up for Christ here because it was his power that did it. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. We build all our life on Christ, and there is salvation in no one else. All right, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The next day, Peter and John are brought before the leadership, the, the Jewish religious leadership are questioning, and they want to know, hey, by what, what, what authority do you have? Tell us what right you have. Tell us what name you have, who sent you, what power do you possess, what, what guts do you have? Tell us why in the world you are here healing this man and you are here preaching the gospel. And if you stop and think about that for a minute, just think about this. What an awesome opportunity. They get to sit with the elites. They have an ear in an audience with some of the most influential people in all of Jerusalem, and they get the opportunity to tell them the good news of Jesus, right? They're not like, well, I'm sorry, man, we, we shouldn't have opened our mouth. It's like, no, praise God, I've got a prison ministry, right? That's their thought process. That's their perspective is that I've got an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people I didn't have an opportunity with the day before, right? So I have an opportunity to share Christ with you, and they tell them, hey, we get to share the gospel with the most exclusive people in Jerusalem, and God opens the door. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he boldly proclaims, we did it by the name, the power, and the authority of Jesus Christ. We did it by him. In other words, it is the name of the one you killed, the name of the one God raised, the name of the one who's alive and still at work today. It is his power, by his power alone, that this man was healed. What's he saying? He's telling them Jesus is not dead. He's still alive. He's risen. He's risen indeed in their salvation and no one else. He says in verse 12, there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Not only must we be saved by the name of Jesus, but we can be saved by the name of Jesus. It is only by his name. And so let it be very clear here in this church today, there is salvation for you and nothing else but the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way for you to be saved. There is no other way for you to get to heaven. There is no other way for you to receive eternal life. There is no other way for you to have forgiveness of sin. It is only exclusively by Christ that we are saved. We are saved by grace right? We are saved by Christ, and we are saved by him and him alone. There is no other way that any of us could ever achieve it. We can never gain it. We could never earn it. It must be received, and so don't miss that. When they're here on trial in front of a holy God, there is no other way for salvation to be received except through Jesus Christ. Have you received it today? Because here's what's powerful about this. Verse 12, he says, and there is salvation in no one else. I want you to notice that. Is, present, active. He didn't say, hey, there was salvation in no other name. Hey, there is salvation for everyone except for you. Right? He says, and, and even to this audience, even to these religious people who are rejecting Christ, he says, hey, but here's good news, man. There is still salvation for you. And I want to tell you this. If there's salvation for them available, there's salvation today for you available. That no matter who you are, 
No matter what you've done, if it was still there, there's still the invitation that there is salvation and no one else, there is still salvation and no one else today for you in Jesus Christ. And so I want to challenge you with that thought, and I want to challenge you if it's even for them, it's even for you. And I want to challenge you with this last thought. Here's the thing about this point of application. Take advantage of your access. Take advantage of your access. What do you mean by that? Well, I want you to see, again, the perspective of Peter and John. Look for every opportunity with every audience you have to share Christ. There are people in this room, all right? You have an audience that I will never have an audience with. You will be around people, and either in your home, your workplace, students at school, you will be able to influence and reach people that no one else in this room will ever have the opportunity to share Christ with. Isn't that amazing? That God has placed us all in different places and God has given us all different callings and God has used us all in different ways and that you all have an audience that I don't have an audience with and you have an audience that your neighbor doesn't have an audience with and so tell me this, or see this, you need to take advantage of every access and every door that God opens for you to share the hope of Christ. Peter and John don't cower. They see this is a golden opportunity. I'm gonna tell them about Jesus. I'm going to tell them there's salvation today for them if they'll repent and return. I'm going to tell them right now that in Jesus' name, they can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Do we look for every advantage and every access that we have? Do we look for that opportunity? Take every opportunity. So the lost received salvation. The religious rejected the Savior. And here's number three. The believers, they refused to be silent. The believers refused to be silent. It goes back on in verse 13 as we continue in the text. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, they understood that they were uneducated, untrained men. I mean, they were amazed. They were shocked. They, they were in awe because they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. They're like, hey, we can't deny this. So we, we can't cover this up. This has gotten too big. It's too obvious. And when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another. I love verse 15 because it helps me as a parent to know when I don't know what to do, all I get is send the kids away and then we'll figure it out, right? All right, we don't know how to handle this, but y'all just get out of the room and let us figure it out. And so they don't know what to do. They're, they're lost. They're dumbfounded. And so they try to confer with one another. And they say in verse 16, what are we going to do? What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all. All right, it's obvious, it's evident, we can't deny it. Who live in Jerusalem, we cannot suppress it. We cannot deny the truth. And so what we will do, so that we'll not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And when Peter and John answered, and they said to them, hey, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Now I'll pause right there, Romans 13 God and government, how do we live as a kingdom citizen, but also a citizen of which God has called us to of this world? Understand this. We uh, obey and respect the authority that God has placed over us until it's in conflict with God's word. All right, when God's word is being compromised, that's when you and I say, no, we refuse to compromise truth. We refuse to disobey the king of kings and lord of lords. I am called here, but I answer to him. And so we understand this is what they're doing. They're like, hey, you've called us to do this. But hey, God has called us to a higher thing. We cannot stop speaking, verse 20. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So understand, in verse 13, not only did it bother them what they taught, it bothered them that they taught in the first place. All right, they, they noticed that they were common. 
They noticed that they were uneducated. They noticed they were untrained men. And so what we see in this, in this instance, the, the, these disciples, they had never been to the right schools. They had never gotten the right degrees. They never had the proper training. They never had any reason to have any place to teach in the temple. They don't have the right. They don't have the authority. That was reserved for special men of a special calling with special school and special training and special heritage. And so they were shocked that these men were coming in and speaking not only in the temple, but speaking about a risen Jesus that they had tried to deny. A risen Jesus that they had even tried to cover up. A risen Jesus they had paid a man to betray himself. They were shocked that they were in here with the confidence and just the courage and just the boldness to come in. And so we have these Jewish PhDs. They're supposed to be the only ones teaching in the temple with such certainty. And they're blown away that these men are coming in and speaking like they know exactly what they're talking about. And what does it say in verse 13? They begin to recognize them as having been with Jesus. I love this because you've ever heard that common phrase, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would you be found guilty or not guilty? And these men are found guilty, literally on a trial in a court of their own little Sanhedrin here. They've got them together in this little council, and they're saying, hey, you're guilty. They recognize they had been with Jesus. What does that mean? They were like Jesus. They taught like Jesus taught. Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus comes and starts preaching and teaching the Sermon on the Mount, they're all like, who, who is this man with such authority? We've never heard anyone preach and teach like this. And now they're recognizing we've never heard anyone preach and teach like this except Jesus. No one else has had this boldness. No one else has had this courage. No one else has had this confidence except Jesus. And they recognize that they have the same stuff that Jesus has. And the leaders have this huge problem on their hands. What are we going to do about this? They come up with a solution. And here's what they say. All right, verse 17. So it will not spread any further among the people. Let's just warn them not to speak no longer to any man in this name. This warning implies a threat. And they say, hey, here's what we're going to do, guys. Don't you tell anyone else about Jesus or else. All right, that's it. It's a pretty empty threat, right? Pretty empty threat. It's not going to be empty in a moment. But they tell them, hey, don't you tell one more person about Jesus. They demand that they never, ever mention his name again. And the warning implies a, a threat. It implies a response that they fail to obey. And that's a price that John and Peter are willing to pay. Because it goes on in verse 20. He says, hey, listen, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Hey, man, we can't help it. We've been changed by Jesus. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry because I'm not going to stop. Right? I've been changed by Christ. I've seen him. I've witnessed him. I've felt his love and I've felt his power. I've been filled with his Holy Spirit. I've been changed by Christ from the inside out. And there's nothing that can take that away from me. I'm here to tell you and I'll tell everyone to the ends of the earth. I've counted the cost. I'm willing to pay the price. I will do whatever it takes to spread the word about Jesus. I can't stop telling people about Christ. Boldness, courage, confidence, 100% undeniable truth. And if I could share that same boldness with you today, there is nothing that will change your life like Jesus Christ. I've felt it. I've experienced it. I've learned it. I've been trained in it. I've, I've known it. And now through the power of the Holy Spirit and the living word of God, there is nothing better than Jesus Christ. It's 100% deniable in my life. I've been following Christ for a long time. And here's what I found. There's nothing better than him. I don't need anything else. 
I don't need the world. I need Christ. And I want to implore you, if I could persuade you today, if I could just tell you, I don't ever want to stop. There's nothing better for you than to taste and see that Jesus Christ is good. And they can't stop. And so I want to challenge you to see this application here. Be committed to Christ no matter the cost. Be committed to Christ no matter the cost. It's kind of an interesting turn here. In the early church, these believers were commanded to be quiet about Jesus. But in today's church, it's often we have to encourage you to get loud about Jesus. Right? It's kind of interesting. They're, they're told, hey, y'all are too loud. You're talking about Jesus too much. We're commanding y'all to turn it down and be quiet and don't talk about him anymore. And oftentimes they're calling for us as a church like, hey guys, we need y'all to be more bold. Y'all need to go out and be more of a witness. Some of you have never shared Christ with one person. You need to do that today. And so it's interesting that they were all of a sudden commanded to be quiet, and we need to be commanded to be loud. And my question is, how could you ever be quiet about a man who saved you from your sin? How could you ever be quiet about a Jesus who's given you his entire life so that you may live? So you go and be committed to Christ no matter the cost. And here's the fourth thing that we see, and we'll wrap it up here. All of a sudden, the church now requested strength. They requested strength. How do we know that? Look at verse 23. When they had been released, all right, they were let go of the council. They went to their own companions. They went back to the church. They reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord in unity and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. God, you're sovereign over all things, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David and your servant said, we were prepared for this. Why did the Gentiles, the nations rage? Why the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth, they took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So none of this is happening outside the control of or purposes of God. Everything is still within God's perfect plan. And they say this in response, all right, God, you're in control of all this. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bond servants, grant that your servants, your slaves to you, that we may speak your word with all confidence. And God, in response to this, we're asking for more confidence, more courage, more boldness while you extend your hand to heal. Signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed a dangerous, bold, courageous prayer, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with what? Boldness. They began to speak with boldness. Church, this is how true believers respond to opposition and persecution. When things get hard and things get tough and we feel like the world and the enemy is coming against us, what do they do? They stop and they pray and they ask for more boldness. God, give me more courage. God, it's getting kind of hard to follow you. God, the world wants me to compromise. Satan is tempting me to be discouraged. Man, my friends are discouraging me. I'm getting no support. I feel like I'm all alone on an island. And so God, in response to that, Give me more, right? Give me more courage. Give me more boldness. They pray courageous prayers. Notice they didn't ask for protection. They asked for power, right? Not, hey, God, protect us from the enemy. Protect us from the council. No, they say, God, give us more power. We're willing to go to the end. 
I'm going all the way to follow you, Christ. I want a power to preach the word. I want power to be witnesses. I, I want a power to see God move. I want power to be used more by you. There was prayer for more boldness and more courage for the mission in the face of opposition and persecution. And so let me challenge you with this. Don't exchange your courage for comfort. Don't ever exchange courage for comfort. It is so cheap to have comfort in this world. I want to be bold. I want to be courageous. I want to be strong for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I feel, I fear that, that we pray more for convenience than we do for courage. Hey God, if you don't mind, will you remove every obstacle out of my way today so I can just live not by faith, but I can live by sight. That'd be great. Hey God, if you don't mind, help a brother out. I'd like today to be smooth and easy. I don't want my taste or I don't want my faith tested, and I don't want to have any trials, and I don't want to grow in my walk with you. I don't want to be dependent on you. In fact, if I could just be dependent on my circumstances, that'd be even better. A lot of times we pray those prayers if we're honest. Like, God, get everything out of my way, and get everything bad out of my life, and everything hard, so I can live a really easy life. I don't want to be tested. I don't want to be stretched. I don't want to be out of my comfort zone. I want to be right here where it's a bubble, and I don't want it to burst. But their prayer was not for comfort. Their prayer was not for convenience. Their prayer was like, God, give me more boldness. I'm ready to go back out. They told me to be quiet. I'm going to be louder. They, t- they told me not to tell people. I'm going to tell more. In fact, they told me to stay here, not go. I'm going to go to the ends of the earth. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, I'm not praying for comfort. I'm praying for courage. Pray bold prayers. Pray for the impossible. Be bold for Jesus. Because here's how we're going to take this home. I want to challenge you with this text as we think about Peter and John and this church. Live in obedience, no matter the obstacle, no matter the opposition. You are called to live in obedience, no matter the obstacle, and no matter the opposition. Because even when the struggles and the discouragement that you face is big, the God who is in you and the God who works through you is always bigger. In the early church, there's a man named John Christison. He was an early church leader in in the early church movement. And and John Christison was was there, and he was brought before the Roman emperor Arcadius. Much like Peter and John, he was preaching the gospel. And Arcadius, the emperor, said, you know what, that's enough. And so Arcadius brings John Christison before the the emperor, before the council. He says, listen, bro, that's enough. you got to stop preaching. You're done. We're, We're calling it off. We're shutting you down. There's no more preaching coming from you. And if you don't stop, we're going to banish you out of the empire. You're going to be gone. And here's what he said. Hey, you can't banish me. You know why you can't banish me? For the world is my father's house. He said, well, fine. If I can't banish you, then I'm going to kill you. He said, nope, that's not going to work either. Can't kill me for my life is hidden with Christ and God. Well, then the, empire said, the emperor said, well, then you're treasuring. I'm going to take all your stuff away from you. You're going to have nothing. We're going to strip you of everything you have. He said, nope, that can't be either. My treasures are all in heaven where no man can break in and steal. He said, well, I'm going to drive you from all men. You're going to be isolated. You're going to be alone. You're going to be all by yourself. You will have no family. You will have no friends. And he says, you can't do that either. I have a friend in heaven who said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. I will never be alone. Everything they threw at him, he was like, can't take it. Belongs to God. Everything they try to take away from him is, nope, it all belongs to him anyways. You can't have anything. It's not mine to go with, right? He's had a response for everything. And ultimately, John Christian was banished to a remote place on the edge of the empire called Armenia. And it's there in Armenia that he would preach the gospel until the day he died. Where? To the ends of the earth. 
Even on the edge, even when he was all by himself, even when he lost it all, he's counted the costs and he said, God, give me more courage for you. Would you be bold? Would you be courageous? Would you be committed to Christ no matter what it may cost? We thank you for listening. Be sure to click the subscribe button on this podcast so you don't miss out on any and all of our future content. We pray you were encouraged by the word of God today. If you feel that the Lord is leading you to make a decision or have questions, you can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or at our website at newlifebaptist.faith.